But we're going to begin to spend some time getting ready so that when we celebrate Christmas together as a church family on December 24th, we're prepared for it. We've got some perspective on it to help pull us out of all this craziness that's around us. And I'm not saying you shouldn't buy presents, and I'm not saying that, but we need to go back and kind of look at at what this is all about. And and, um, these are all things you know, but my prayer is that God would take it to a deeper level in our heart, that it would change our attitude towards Christmas. So there are many main features to Christmas. Christmas is a beloved time of year, although now the trend is to try to take Christmas out of this holiday, and it's just a holiday season. And we'll talk about that in, in a minute or so. But let's, you know, even other than the times we're in now, Christmas has always been a special time of year where, 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 where this, you know, people love each other to a level that they don't normally love each other, where we're conscious of, of, of being kind to people. And you have you know, the, 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 the people standing outside the stores with the bells and the, and the Salvation Army kettle, and, and people come and they give to that. It's a time where people, you know, just their hearts tend to be more open to give. And, and even, it's amazing... In, traditionally in the middle of wars, and I don't know if it's happened in, in some of the bat wars that have gone on lately, but in the other world wars and things like that, they would actually have a truce for one day. Yeah. I mean, they stopped fighting for one. These people trying to kill each other, bomb each other out of existence, say, this is Christmas, let's stop. Now they could do it for one day. <laughs> Why? What's behind all this? It tends to be a more joyful time of the year, unless you're in stores. It's even a time when, when people are kinder to one another, may hold the door open for one another. But why? What's behind all this? What's behind this? It, it can't be something that's come from man. If, man. if man can stop, man can't stop fighting each other. They can do it for one day. But to stop fighting each other, that requires something motivating beyond just, you know, I would decide I want to be kind to people today. So we're going to talk about today, we're going to begin to talk about this today, and it's, it's no secret what this series is called, it's for God so loved the world that. But today's kind of an introduction to it, to kind of prepare it. Man on his own cannot create this feeling of love and of charity towards one another. We can do it for a day or maybe a season, but what's behind all this? Why, why, why did the world decide, or parts of the world decide, let's take this day and let's use this as a day to celebrate? I mean, that's before the stores got involved in it. Okay, so that's what we're going to begin to look at today. The root of Christmas, the root of the, what's called the spirit of Christmas, is really charity and goodwill towards people. People's hearts are just warmer towards one another. People tend to, you know, hold the door for people they would not normally hold the door for. Think of, even just the fact that you're thinking of people to buy presents for means you're not thinking of yourself. And so, so it, the whole season is a time when people begin to think of other people, begin to care more for other people, maybe you're more conscious of charities and giving a little more to those things. So what's happened, though, is our culture's begun to extract Christ out of Christmas because it's, it's, it's confrontational. So, and as they've done that, we've gotten further and further away from the source, uh, and, and it's become more pressure and more commercial and it's, what's happening is man's trying to do this now without God. And anything man tries to do without God ultimately will be selfish, self-centered. So, okay, with that background, 
we're going we're gonna to look at, go back and look at what is really behind Christmas. And I'm not talking about historically, because there's teachings out there that will tell you that, that Christmas, Jesus wasn't actually born in December 25th. He was probably born in July. Um, and I don't, I've never researched all that out, but the teachings out there and that Christmas was a pagan holiday that then the church adopted. We're not talking about that this morning. We're talking about what the Bible says about Christmas. So to do that, let's go to John 3.16, one of the most famous verses in the Bible. And I, I've done this basic message on at least one, maybe several Christmas Day messages or Christmas Eve messages. But I want to build this as a series. Very famous verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But that's one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. Most of us just know that by heart. We just rattle it off. John 3.16. You may see a sign on a football stadium on TV that says 3.16. You'll know that's John 3.16. For God so loved the world. So many pagans, many unbelievers know this. But we're going to spend some time breaking this down. Because this does not say that God loved the world. It does not say that God loved the world. It said that God so loved the world. And we're going to talk about the world's word so, but I, before we do that, I want to talk about the word loved. Because love is one of those words in the English language that has all kinds of meaning. From everything to I love peanut butter to I love my wife, and I better not mean the same thing. In the Greek, there are at least five, there's actually six, I think, but there's five basic words for love that each has a very different meaning. There's a word eros, which is a sexual desire, a physical desire for somebody. There's the word phileo, which is, means a brotherly kindness, a warm kindness, a, a brotherly love, which is basically a love, I love you because I feel something for you and because you feel something for me. And that's the most common love that people experience. But this word that's used here is the word agape, which is a word that was very seldom used by Greek writers outside of the New Testament. And I want to just read to you uh, just uh, one of the definitions that, about this to get a feel for this. It's an unconditional love, which means that's hard for us to understand because everything we know in life is based on a condition. Phileos kind of based on the condition. I have warm feelings towards you, you have warm feelings back towards me. So if somebody meets you and, you and they begin to reach out to you and say, you know, Richard, it's really good to meet you. I've always wanted to meet you. I've always wanted to know you. You just seem like such a wonderful guy. That will trigger an resp emotional response in Richard, at least I hope it will, where he begins to have an openness towards me because I'm giving some kind of love and attention to him. So there's an openness to me to respond to that. That's, got, that's phileo. But this word agape is very different because it's not based on anything you do for me. It's not based on you at all. Agape is an unconditional love. Unconditional means there's nothing you can do to earn it and there's nothing you can do to lose it. It's not based on you. 
And this is hard to get our minds wrapped around because everything we know is based on what did I do? And even if you read the Old Testament, the law looks like it's all based on you do the right things, God loves you. You do the wrong thing, God hates you. That's not what the Old Testament teaches, but it can look that way. Just, just keep that up there. It's good to let it soak in. This word agape, I'm going to read a little more. That's just unconditional love. It's unconditional. It's not based on you. It's not based on anything you can do or not do. You can't have it one day and lose it the next because it's not based on you. It's based on the one that gives it. It tells you something about the giver of that agape, not the one to whom it's given. Secondly, it's love by choice. It's an act of your will. This changed my life, changed, changed my part in our marriage. Because I was raised in a family where love was not just conditional, it was used as a manipulative tool. That if you didn't do what they wanted you to do, they, you were told, you don't love us. And that's destructive. It took years for me to overcome that by renewing my mind that God's not like that. God's not manipulating. My wife's not like that. She's not manipulating me. And so, so when, I was, when I grew up, I grew, came into marriage with that concept of love. And it messed me up. I was, I was always insecure until one time we went through a, a marriage experience together. Uh, and this principle was taught. Love is a decision, it's not an emotion. And that startled me. Love is a decision? Because I was always insecure. I don't know if I can continue to love her because I felt inadequate in giving love. And when I heard love is a decision, well, I have a will. I can decide to do that whatever, regardless of what I'm feeling. Now here's the problem with that. It takes the excuse away. It takes the excuse away. The Bible says in a number of places that we're, as Christians, we're commanded, not asked, not request, not suggested, not that it's a good idea. We're commanded by the head of the church to love one another. He would not be just to command us to do something we couldn't do. Now, He doesn't command us to love one, those that love us back. He doesn't command us to love those that are lovable. Aren't you glad He didn't just love those that were lovable? Because as lovable as you think you are, compared to Him, you're not so lovable. But if, he, if love is a decision, then I can do that no matter how I feel. I have control over whether I love her or not. I have control over whether I love you or not. So with that control comes responsibility for how I exercise it. So this love of God, for God so loved the world, He loved us unconditionally, but it's an act of His will. It's a choice He made to love you. It's a choice He made. It's not, this is so important to see, because every, again, we live our lives so much based on phileo love and the other kinds of love, which is basically, look, if I've ticked Nick off today about it because I didn't greet him when I went by, which I did, because I know I better. No, I'm joking. If I didn't, if I, or I looked at him the wrong way, he, he might think I don't care for him, then he might get offended at me, he gets offended at me, I get offended back at him, and now we get this thing going, which is none of which is love. But I don't love Nick based on the fact that he, he, he was, he was, I won't say it, that he smiled to me today. I love Nick because I choose to love him. Now, he's lovable, but I choose to love him. That's why Jesus said, you can love your enemies. They're not lovable. 
I get people out there writing nasty things about me, sending emails about me. And you know what? I love them. I pray for them. I really do. Especially if I know who they are, I pray for them. I don't mean God get them. I, I pray for them. <laughs> I pray for them, Lord. Get them! <laughs> King David did that in the Old Testament, but we're not in the Old Testament. But you know, when, when I've done that, I've experienced Christ at a different level. Because that's what He's done. The Bible says He ever lives to make intercession. He's interceding for you, even on your worst day. Even when you've failed and failed Him and denied Him, even when you've gotten mad and lost it, He's up there praying for you. You shake your fist at Him. He's praying for you. Because His love for you is not based on how He feels about you. His love for you is based on a decision. But I found this, when I decide to love, the feelings begin to follow those. So it's, it is unconditional. It is unconditional. And it's an act of the will. It's a choice, an act of the will. Listen to this. The word agape denotes uncomparable, un- unconquerable benevolence. And undefeatable goodwill. In Romans chapter 8, which Paul gets all worked up about this, and he talks about from the chapter, from verse 1 on, of what God's done for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do because of the weakness of our flesh, God did. God did for us what we could not do. Sending His own Son in the likeness of flesh, He condemned my sin in His flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law may be fulfilled in me who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. He goes on and on and on and talks about what God did for us while we were still His enemies. Then He comes up to the end of it and He talks about prayer and He says, because we don't know what to pray because we're dealing with spiritual things and we can't see the spiritual issues but God's made provision for that because if you pray in the Spirit if you pray in the Spirit the Spirit helps us pray and He prays the perfect will to God because God causes all things work together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose stop there a second I don't want to get on this tangent that's not saying whatever happens God made happen or allows You can drive out of here today and choose to drive out on, 140, on, on uh, 195 with your eyes closed and if you get run over by a tractor trailer, that wasn't God's will. That was your stupidity. Well, God causes all... No, He may take good out of it, but He didn't cause it. It's those who love God and are called according to His purpose for whom He foreknew, He, called, he predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. And he goes on and talks about what God's done for us. And he kind of gets up in this rapture. He says, wow, if God's for us, who can possibly be against us? That's another one of those phrases that's so, verses that is so pregnant with the love of God. He's just spent 26 verses, 28 verses, talking about all that God has done for you and me. And he just kind of sets back and says, Wow, if God's for us, who can possibly be against us? He who spared not his own son, that's what we're going to be talking about, 
But he who spared not his own son, the most precious thing he had, but gave him up for us all, how will we not also freely with him give us all things? God's not holding anything back. Whatever you need today, God's not holding it back. If he didn't hold back his own son for us, bunch of turkeys, maybe that's not a good term to use at this time of year, for us reprobates, which is what we were, if he didn't hold us back while we were God's enemy, how much more will he freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Shall God? He's the one that justified us. Shall Christ Jesus? He's the one that died for us. He's the one that was raised for us. He's the one that's sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for us. God's, everything God has is for us. So when it says God loves us, He's not just sitting in heaven having warm feelings towards you this morning. Wow. Don, Kathy, I just, I love you, man. I love you, woman. I, I just love you, Nick. I love you. God's not doing it. God, God has emptied everything out because He loves you. He's held nothing back because He's loved you. He's poured everything you're ever going to need out in Christ. Everything you're ever going to need. He's poured it out already ahead of time while we were yet His enemies. How could we doubt His love for us? He's saying, what else can I do? I have nothing else to give. I've given everything. Then what's the problem? We don't believe it. We don't believe it. I better read on in this definition. We'll never get out of the definition. This isn't the, this isn't the point of the message. So the word agape indicates uncomparable benevolence, undefeatable goodwill. Agape will never seek anything but the highest good for others. They are the words of God's unconditional love. It doesn't require any chemistry between us. It doesn't require any affinity or good feeling. It is a word that is exclusively belongs to the Christian community and it is a love virtually unknown to the writers of the New Testament. That's just a flavor of what the word love means. But we're talking about the word so. Because we could just say God loved the world, but the word so is so, is so important here because the word so changes this from just a statement about what God did to a window into His heart. Because everything that follows the word so is going to tell us how much and with what quality God has loved us. Everybody following me so far? Okay. So the word so means whatever follows is going to tell us something about God and this love He has for us. And it starts out right off with the biggest thing. For God so loved the world. Notice it doesn't say God loved the church. Because when God loved, there was no church. In fact, there would be no church if God didn't love first. Here in His love, not that we love God, but that God first loved us. God so loved the world. That means everybody that's ever existed or ever will exist, God loved them the same amount. We tend to look at people as values in terms of, well, there's some people more value. We, we have this expression sometimes we'd say, you know, wow, that person make a great Christian. You know what qualifies you to be a great Christian? To be a great sinner. 
Some of you get that on the way home. The only qualification to be a great Christian is to be a great sinner. Because you don't get into, you don't become a Christian by being a good person that becomes a Christian. In fact, if you're a good person, that could get in the way. It did in mine. I was for a good person. I love my wife, didn't cheat on her, I didn't, I paid my taxes. I was actually a good person that was a lawyer, right? We've got another one here. We've had other ones here. That's a good person. So my thinking was, why do I need Christ compared to the other lawyers I work with? I was a saint. Compared to other people, I was good. So that stood in my way because I didn't understand that God wasn't comparing me to you or to my fellow lawyers in the law firm. God was comparing me to Him. And it was a verse in Matthew in Matthew's, uh, 6, I think it is, where Jesus says, Be perfect as, my heaven, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I'm like, whoa, we got a problem there, John. You may be better than a lot of people you know, but you're not better than God. <laughs> you fall way short of that standard. And the words out of my mouth, literally sitting on our couch at about 12.30 in the morning with my Bible open was, God, if that's what you require, I need somebody to save me. And I heard my own words. And for the first time in my life, I understood why Jesus died for me. For God so loved the world. Because we can, as Christians, look down on non-Christians. We can look down as those people that are out there on the news and those people that are in Washington and those people out there and say, well, you know, and get angry at them and become judgmental at them. But God so loved them too. God so loved them too. God so loved the homosexual. God so loved the the deviants. God so loved the people that we want to look, we tend to look down on, but God loved them. God loved them. I remind myself almost every Sunday coming in here that this is not my church. I'm not ministering to my people. I'm going to stand before people that He loved so much He died for. I didn't die for you. He did. He loved you that much that He died for you. For God so loved the world and notice he did something. Because this love of God, this love that, that He gave to us, this love cannot sit still. This love has to do something. This love cannot be contained. In fact, there's an old expression, this kind of love is not love until it's given away. You don't really know this kind of love until you begin to give this kind of love. And remember, you can't do it based on whether you feel you have it or not. Because it's not based on a feeling, it's based on an act of your will. For God so loved the world. I'm going to talk about that for a second. God's love requires Him, compels Him to give. One of the things that began to really change me over the last year is this thought dawned on me. I guess it was from a, a, a book I was reading. Why it never dawned on me before, I don't know. But it dawned on me wait a minute, man was God's idea. It wasn't our idea. We didn't get together a bunch of, you know what, let's, let's, let's create ourselves. Man was God's idea. 
Well, why would God do this? God, you can't make God do anything. So, if God created man, He must have wanted man. So we're gonna, what we're going to do in this time, these few weeks together, we're going to look at this from God's side, especially today. Man was God's idea. Was it because he was lonely? I don't think so. He's got millions and millions of angels. He's got the Son and the Holy Spirit. But this love of God is so, so, so overwhelming, so filling him up that he had to give it away. But he had to create somebody to give it to. Now think about this. Oh, think about this. The reason God created you is because he had so much love, he had the someone to bestow it on. Think about that. He's so full of love, and that two people couldn't satisfy him. Adam and Eve couldn't satisfy him. The, the world couldn't satisfy this love. Why do you exist? Why was mine created? Because God was compelled because of this love in him. He had to have someone to pour it out on, to be a blessing to, to bless. Why did he choose Abram? He says, I've chosen you that I might bless you. That's not a response to somebody sneezing. Some of you will get that. God bless you. We've taken that word blessing and we've watered it down to a response to a sneeze. God had to give everything He had. He couldn't hold anything back. And He had to create man as someone to give it to and then multiply him. That's why He created man to multiply. Everything God creates has... With, we aren't, can't off, go off on this, John. We're going to get on a sidetrack. I know it if I go any further with this. But God created man to multiply so he could have more men, more women to pour this love out on. Because he's not satisfied with what he has to bestow it on. Not only that, when he creates the man and the woman, he gets them all done and he, he, he creates a place for them. It's a garden. And what's it called? Eden. You know what Eden means? In, in Hebrew, Eden means a place of overwhelming delight. That's why the term Garden of Eden conjures up this place of wonderful splendor and blessing. Because God, God had this man and this woman he loved. He, and he says, not enough just to have you here. I want to create a place for you to live. And I want, here, let me put you in it. Oh, and I filled it with everything you'd like. Everything they needed. Everything they liked. This is what God's like. Everything you need. He's provided already. Shows you how far we've fallen. And it's here for you to enjoy. And some of the translations said he commanded them to eat of the trees of the garden. This one tree he said you can't eat of. And there are a number of reasons for that. I don't want to get off on that too much. But part of that is to remind them, you don't own this. I do. The other part it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because man was not designed to handle on his own the knowledge of good and evil. And so, so he places him there. And then he gives him a job. Part of God's blessing was he gave him a job. I'll say that over here. <laughs> Part of God's blessing was he gave them a job. It's God's 
plan that we all work. (laughs) But the job he gave them was to oversee and tend this garden, but it watered itself. A dew settled on it every morning and watered itself. It produced after its own kind. There weren't weeds. He just had to watch over it. It was an easy job. Everything God created, this earth, all flowed towards everything God gave him to do. The earth cooperated with man because it was a place of blessing God had created. But once the fall came, once they disobeyed God, once they took their lives into their own hands, when they did that, they tried to become their own God. And a curse entered the earth. And now the earth is fighting man. In fact, in Romans 8 it says it groans. These earthquakes and the earth now groans, waiting for the redemption of the sons of men. That's us to come back and for the new Jerusalem to be established here. But my point is, what God created, what He wanted, was a place of blessing, a place of abundance, a place of provision, a place of joy and a peace. Because God loved that man and that woman, and He gave it to them. He loved them so much, knowing what they were going to do. He already had a plan of redemption in place. It was only 14 verses. It wasn't even that long after they'd sinned. That God announced a plan of redemption, John Genesis 3.15 to redeem them. This is what this love is like. Ephesians chapter 1. Let's bring it up to today. Well, let's bring it up to the New Testament. I spent, I think it was last year, maybe it was the year before, several months just meditating on these verses I'm going to read to you. Verse 3, Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every, say every, every. spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Let me stop there a second. The word spiritual means given by the Spirit. So God has blessed us with every blessing that the Spirit can give us from His heavenly places. In other words, God's given everything to us through the Spirit. Why did He do that? Verse 4, in Christ. Just as He chose us, He chose us. He chose us. He chose us. When I was a boy growing up, I was not exactly athletic. I was a little pudgy. I just was not athletic. I, was core, I just wasn't athletic. And, um, and sometimes you'd get in these groups of guys and they'd pick teams. And we're going down the line and they're picking people. And the, the, the choices are getting fewer and fewer. And I'm hoping that I'm not the last one picked. Because the last one picked wasn't chosen. (laughs) They were the leftovers. Because there was no other choice. And so, you're not a leftover. You're not, God didn't look at you and say, I don't really have a choice here. I'm stuck, you know. There's everybody else is taken, you know. 
Ron, I'm sorry. I just, you know. Ron, I, I, I choose you. That's not a choice. A choice is when I can say yes or no. A choice is when I can choose to do it or choose not to do it. That means God chose you. Now, understand this. God knows everything. Notice when He chose you before the foundation of the world. Before He'd ever done anything. Before ever you'd done anything good or bad, He chose you. Over in, I think it's Romans 9, He talks about how God chose Isaac over Jacob, uh, Jacob over Esau. He's before they'd done anything even born, God chose Jacob. God chose you before the foundation of the world. God chose you. God chose you. Now, if it was before the foundation of the world, you hadn't done anything yet, had you? Had you done anything before? You didn't exist. None of us existed. So God's choice of you was not based on anything you did or didn't do. It was simply based on His love. He chose us, but He chose us in Him, in Christ. Because none of this works if we're not in Christ. Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. God's not saying, I chose you because I know you would become holy. No, God's saying, I chose you to make you holy and to make you without blame because if you're not holy without blame, you can't come to me because I'm holy. Without blame before Him. And what motivated Him to do this? What motivated Him to choose us? What motivated Him to make us holy without blame before Him? Those last two words, in love. This is all motivated by God's love for us. Verse 5. Having predestinated, predestined. Don't don't get hung up on that word because a lot of times we hear that word and we think of predestination. And we think of predestination in terms of God chose some people to go to heaven and God chose some people to go to hell. That's not what the Word of God teaches us. Predestined just means pre-planned for. So if you went to somebody's house for Thanksgiving... They pre-planned for you to come. They chose you, invited you, and they had a place for you, hopefully, at the table or however you ate it. You were planned for. God planned for us, look at this, not just to go be with Him, but to be adopted as His Son. We're talking about how much He loved us. God had to have us. He chose us before the foundation of the world. We're looking at it from God's heart. He chose us, and what did He chose us to become? His sons and daughters, not just to get it to heaven. See, I was kind of raised to think that when, you, hey, when you're saved, you, what it means is you're going to go to heaven. No, that's the side result. That's the side result. God chose you. I'm gonna, in fact, I'm going ahead of myself, and I'm going to walk this through. The Bible teaches this pattern, and I want you to see it. I just quoted some of Romans 8. God sent His Son that He would become a man, that He could die in our place on that cross so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us because He paid the price for our sin. Under the law, if you sin, you must die. In fact, it's not just under the law. If you sin, you must die. 
And sin is not just doing something wrong. That's the fruit of sin. The root of sin is pride. I can do it myself. It's rebellion. I have the right to decide what I want to do. That means I'm my God and you're not my God. That's rebellion. And that's the root of all sin. And Christ took the price for our rebellion, that death and that suffering on Himself. Why? So that the guilt would be paid for so that God could give us His righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now why did He do that? Why did He have Christ take our sin? Because if He didn't take our sin, He couldn't make us righteous. So Christ took our, took places with us. He took our sin, which we earned, and gave us His righteousness, which He earned. So we have a righteousness that we didn't earn, and He had our sin that He didn't earn, and He died with that sin to pay the price so that we might legally have His righteousness. But why would God want to make us righteous? Why? He had another goal in mind, so that we could now become His sons and daughters just like Jesus was His son. God wanted more sons and daughters. He wasn't satisfied to just have Jesus. He wanted the world to become His sons and daughters. This is what motivated him. <coughs> Verse 6. Oh, no, stay there. Having pre- that was the word predestined us. To adoption as sons, the key is by Jesus Christ. Look at this, to himself. He didn't just adopt you to get into heaven. He adopted you to himself. It's personal. It's personal. And, and why? Because we talked him into it? No. According to or measured by the good pleasure of His will. None of you snuck into heaven because you managed to get some things by Him. If you apply for a job, you have to fill out an application or fill out a resume. And you know, there are people out there who will advise you about how to put a resume together. And, and they may want you to leave a few things out or maybe reword a few things where where you got fired and they say, well, I was, un- I was unnecessary. Because <laughs> they want you to present yourself, listen carefully, they want you to present yourself, you want to present yourself to this prospective employer in the best possible light because you want them to like you and want you so that they'll hire you. You can put whatever resume you want together for God. And you can say you were unnecessary or they had a change in plans, but he knows you were fired. (laughs) He knows everything about you. He knows everything you think. He knows everything you desire. He knows every thought you've ever had. He knows every one of them. He knows every thought you're ever going to have. The Bible says in Hebrews 4 that there's nothing hidden from his sight. Nothing. Your thinking, your desires... Your things you did when you thought nobody else was looking, guess what? Everything God knows about you. But knowing everything about you, He still chose you. Because He didn't choose you based on you, He chose you based on Him and what He wanted. To the good, this is what I was meditating on several years ago, the good pleasure of His will. 
his will to, to, his will to have me as his son pleased him. It gave him good pleasure to adopt me as his son. It gave him good pleasure to adopt you as his son and daughter. Hebrews 12 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The cross was not fun. But not only did Jesus suffer on that cross, the father suffered watching his son go through that. And what motivated him was the pleasure of who he would have because he was willing to pay that price. For God so loved you. For God so loved you. Verse 6. To the praise of the glory of His grace. To the praise of the glory of His grace. So what's all this do? It, it gives praise and reveals the glory of how gracious He is. How kind He is. By which he, now the New King James says, made us accepted in the Beloved. Other translations say that uh, was freely bestowed upon us in the Beloved. What it means is he poured out his favor on the, through the Beloved. So through Christ, his Beloved, he poured his favor out on you. You are highly favored by God. Nobody else may like you, but you're highly favored by God. Let's go to chapter 2, Ephesians 2. For God so loved. Verse 4. This is... Uh, the but refers to the first three verses where, where Paul says, You were dead in your sins and transgressions, living according to the course of this world among the children of disobedience, and you were, by, you were by nature children of wrath. So before we came to Christ, we were by our known nature children of God's wrath because we were rebellious and disobedient. But God, that word but is so powerful. Everything that's just been said about us gets reversed because of God. But God. So the focus is not on me and how bad I was now, but it's on God and how good He is. But God. And what about Him? Who is rich. And that word rich is an interesting word. Because it's a relative term. It's nice to have rich relatives. I don't mean it that by, by that. Where's your sense of humor this morning? <laughs> but rich is a relative term because it depends on who you're comparing it with. So to some of you, to, to some of you, others in here may be rich. Because they've got an abundance and you're just barely making it. But to those in here that are considered rich, if you sit them down next to Bill Gates or some other like that, they're not very rich because Bill Gates has so much more than they have. We're talking about what God has. We're talking about what He's rich in. He's rich in mercy. He doesn't just have mercy, He doesn't just have a merciful side, He's rich in it. So you're never going to outuse His mercy. Because first of all, in Lamentations, it says it's new every morning. If you think you used it up yesterday, there's a fresh new supply today. Why? Because He's rich in it. 
We like to talk about the streets of gold and the gates of pearl, but God's, that's nothing. That's paving material to Him. What He's rich in, what we need is mercy. And then it says in Ephesians, in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, He says, let us come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy and help in time of need. God's throne is now a throne of mercy. He's rich in mercy. He's rich in His love towards you. But God who is rich in mercy because of, that word in Greek is the word DIA, which means in this case it means motivated by, through the agency of, because of, on account of. On account, God, what he's going to say, God, on account of or because of his great love with which he will love us when we get our lives finally in order and make the commitment we need to make. No, that's past tense. He's rich in mercy and motivated by, driven by, His great love with which He loved us. The Amplified says, because of and in order to satisfy the great an intense love with which God loved us. Ever get a, you're just really hungry and you, you'll eat anything or, or you get a, a mosquito bite somewhere and you just, you just, I can't get it. Oh. And, and you know, you might touch it a little bit and it starts itching more and it just, oh, oh, you, oh. And finally you find a door and you, oh. You just satisfied your itch in order to satisfy the great and intense love, the desire, the need from deep down within Him that He had for you. That's what that's saying. With which He loved us. Verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Somebody that's dead can't do anything good or bad. Dead is hopeless. That's what he's talking about there. When we were hopeless, dead in our trespasses and sins, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. Verse 6. And He raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Oh, I've got to say this. Oh, we've got time. I used to have this image. Uh, Excuse me, cameraman, but I'm going to give you a little exercise here. Here's God the Father sitting on the throne. And Jesus, as the Bible says, is now sitting at His right hand because His work's finished. He's sitting there until His enemies are made a footstool. And then as people come to Christ, the Bible says we're seated with Him in heavenly places. Okay? So I kind of had it figured this way. You had Jesus here, and then there's the Apostle John here because he was the one that loved Him the most and was next to Him. Then you may have had Peter over here, and then, you know, the rest of them. And then you have uh, uh, Paul, of course. Paul may be up in here somewhere. And then you've got, you've got the rest of them over here. And then, you know, you've got the martyrs. They're here somewhere. And then you've got way down here, you know, first century, third century, 2000. And somewhere way over there, somewhere around Boston, is John, this John. So we're seated with him in heavenly place. Hi, Jesus. 
I'm here. Whew, am I glad? That's not what it says. It says, made together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So you've got God the Father, you've got Jesus sitting next to Him, and I'm in Him sitting next to the Father. The Father wanted me, the Father wanted you seated right next to Him, not way down, I'm at the banquet, but I'm way down the line somewhere. In Christ Jesus, verse 7. That why, why did He do this? That in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in the kindness that He's displayed towards us in Christ. God wants to show off. Think of that. What could God show off? He could show off His power. He could show off His power by everybody that talks about Him just what you and I like to do sometimes. Fry them on the spot. <laughs> Show them who God is. Oh, this is important because we try to do that for Him. Somebody is disrespectful to God or you may get people that, that are, have a lifestyle that's contrary to the Word of God and we think we're going to defend God. That's what got Eve in trouble. She was trying to defend God. God's never called us to defend Him. So we think we're going to get into a fight with somebody over God. We're going to defend God. But God's not trying to show how powerful He is. He knows how powerful He is. Jesus didn't come to display how powerful God is or how powerful He is. When you know it, you don't have to show it off. But what did He come to show? What about God does God want to show through the ages about Himself? What is it God needs to get across to people? What does God need us to get across to people about Him? Not His power. Not His judgment, the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness towards us. God wants to show off His kindness by showing it off on what He's done with you and me. The Lord spoke this to me one day. He says, you know what, what you are to me? I said, besides the Son, He says, you're a trophy. Oh, yeah? Of my grace. You're a trophy of how kind I am. You're a trophy how gracious I can be to somebody that's as messed up as you are. You're, you're, as, you're, you're a trophy of my, my grace and my kindness, not what a good Christian you are. Now, we need to be good Christians, but what we're here to show off is His kindness of his, in His grace and kindness that He gave towards us in Christ Jesus. Oh, my goodness. I was concerned we, I would be done early. Okay, so this Christmas season... We're, that's just kind of the opening. This Christmas season, we're going to look at what God did in more detail to, to get a glimpse of how what He did for us out of His love becomes more real to us. And then we're going to look at how does this translate into our lives? Because it does. It translates into our lives. So to do this, we'll just probably get started on this today. Let's look back. We're going to look at the Christmas story, but we're going to look at it back from, the, from God's perspective. Almost all the stories that you hear in Christmas time start with what happened in the earth. But we're going to look at it. So we go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Simple little words.
In the beginning. Does that sound familiar? Have we read that somewhere else? Genesis chapter 1 starts out that way. So before we get into this, let's look, in the beginning of what? In the beginning of what? Well, it's not in the beginning of God. God has no beginning or no end. So it's in the beginning of the earth and this realm of existence, this material realm of existence. Not just this physical earth, but this everything that's material. The, the material world, things you can touch, see, taste, feel, and hear, those are of the material realm, but there's other realm out there, the spirit realm, which is where God lives. John, uh, John 4.24 says that God is a spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth, because God's not a physical human being. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So, in the beginning, when God created this, the heavens and the earth, this material realm, in the beginning was the Word. Oh, that's good to know. But let's talk about that word, Word. There's two main Greek words for word in the Bible. Because in English, there's just one word for word. But in, it's going to be a tongue tire. But in Greek, there's at least two. One is the word rhema, R-H-E-M-A. And that means basically words like I'm doing, speaking. It's speaking things. But this is the word logos, L-O-G-O-S, which means the full expression of a concept, the full expression of an idea, but in applied to a person, it's the full expression of a person, their character, their nature, and their will. So let's use that definition. In the beginning was the full expression of the character and nature of God. And the full expression of the character and nature of God was with God. And the full expression of the character and nature of God was God. Let's bring it down to a, to a more personal way. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> I've noticed that as I've got older and I look in the mirror in the morning and shave, or just look in the mirror in the morning, I, sometimes it looks as if my father's looking back at me. I don't mean my heavenly father, I mean my earthly father who passed away 23 years ago. I'm finding the older I get, the more I tend to look like him. But that's not shocking, is it? I mean, I like it, but it's not shocking, is it? Because I'm my father's son, my flesh is my father's son. Okay. We have an expression. Well, there's just a chip off the old block. What they mean is they're just like their parents. So you find even your children, I remember, my, you're fine, you, you may say, boy, I hope my, you know, I don't want, don't, never mind, I'm getting, I'm getting too many sidetracks here. It's, it's, it's very common for children to begin to act like their parents, talk like their parents, and they'll, 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 mimic you, they'll mimic you the good and the bad. So if people want to know what you're like at home, they just listen to your parents. It's interesting. I like coming in the lunchroom on, on, you know, during school and get to know some of you by talking to your kids. <laughs> now don't forget, don't, you can send them to school tomorrow. It's my day off. I won't be here. No, I'm joking. But a, a, a child, a son, is in many ways an expression of his father. And especially not just physically, but as you live with them, you'll begin to pick up their, their, their dialect. You'll begin to pick up their expressions. They'll begin to pick up uh, their attitudes and things like that. And some of them we don't want. We have to change. But it's normal to do that. And so what this is saying is, in the beginning, before all this was created, there was God the Father, and there was a full, another being in Him that was the full expression of Him full expression of His will, His nature, 
his attitude, his ways. Verse 2. He, so it's a person, was in the beginning with God. Next verse. All things were made through Him. This is the Word, the second person of the Godhead. We're taking back now, we're stepping back before Christmas now, before that first Christmas, and we're looking at heaven. What's going on up there? And we see God, the creator of all things. And we see this other part of Him called in the Bible the Word, which just means another God, a full expression of Him. And now we see that all things were made, and we see that He is a person along with God the Father. All things were made through Him, not for Him. They were made for the Father, but they were made through the Son. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. Now, we're not going to go there, but if you go down further in this chapter, John talks about an irony, which was where he, he came among us, and, and he came among his own, and his own knew him not. They didn't receive him. The very beings, think about this. The very cross on which Jesus was crucified, he made. Now, he didn't cut the cross, but the wood came through the creation that came through him. The nails driven in his hands and his feet were ultimately created by him. The soldiers that crucified him were created by him. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and those that called for his death were created by him. We're going to talk about that as we go further in. We're talking about this kind of love. This kind of love. When they're trying you illegally and you look at them and know, I made you. You can't breathe if it's not my will for you to breathe. We'll get there. We're going to talk about that. Okay. And nothing was made. In Him was life. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. Verse 5. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend that. That means overcome it. All right, that's, who the, word, that's the Word. All things were... The Word is the second person of the Godhead. All the glory of the Father, all the power of the Father, all the, all the, all the knowledge of the Father, all things were made for the Father through Him. Verse 14. And that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Those words are so powerful. My prayer has been, God, today, by the Spirit of God and through this series, help us, help me to get across the depth of what this is saying. It's hard for us to imagine because all we know is flesh among us, our own and all the people around us. But we're talking about God stepping out of heaven to not just walk among us. Because what we're going to see, if we don't run out of time, what we're going to see is that, that God could not legally do that. Say, God could not do something? I thought God was sovereign. God is sovereign. 
But God, as an act of His sovereignty, limited Himself. When God created this earth and God created man and put him there, He gave man authority. And the only way anybody can operate in this world, operate in this world, is to, is to, is to become a man or a woman, take on the flesh. You cannot operate in this world. That's why demonic forces try to occupy somebody. Remember when Jesus was going to cast those legion of demons out of the demoniac? And they said, don't send us back to hell. We don't want to go there. Even the demons are smart enough they don't want to go to hell. They've seen it. Cast us into someone else. So he let them go into pigs. They had to occupy some being in order to operate. And angels the same way. Angels can't just come and do what they want. They, they do our bidding. Hebrews 1.14 Aren't they also servants sent to minister to the sons of salvation? That's you and me. So here's God's issue. He's got to come down. He wants to express His love. He's got to redeem us. But He can't just step out of heaven as God. He's got to take on flesh like you and me do have flesh. I, it's, suppose, you, suppose you had an ant farm. Um, I can't think of it. And this doesn't even begin to come close to it. Suppose you had, we, our kids had an ant farm at one point, I think. I don't think they all live, but they had an ant farm. And yes, you know, interesting to see these little ants and how busy they were. They, they work. And they were busy all doing their own job and working. And you, you know, but what if, what if they were struggling and because I love them so much, you know what, I'm going to become one of those little ants. And I'm not going to become the queen ant, I'm going to become one of the, the workers, one of the warriors, one of the worker ants. And I somehow could step out of this body and step into the body of an ant. Make sure I don't get around you because you might go, oh. <laughs> that doesn't begin to express the enormity of what He did. The Word became flesh. God became flesh and dwelt among us. Philippians 2, and we'll just get to open this up and then we'll pick it up next time. For God so loved the world. Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. <laughs> I love this. This is where we'll end up with this. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We talk about having the mind of Christ. This is the mind of Christ. This is His attitude. This is how He looked at us. This is how He looked at the world. This is His attitude. Let this same mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Verse five, 6. Who being in the form of God, the form of God, He was God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Stay there a second. I want to break that down a little bit. In order for somebody to rob you, they've got to take something that doesn't belong to you and take it for themselves. Right? To steal, you can't rob from yourself because it's already yours. You can move it somewhere else, 
but you can't rob for yourself because robbery involves somebody else taking something they're not entitled to. So what Paul is saying is, for him to be equal with God was not robbery. Why was it not robbery? Because he was equal with God, because he was God. So he's talking about who he is now. This is God and the Son, Jesus, or the Christ. It was not robbery for him to consider himself equal with God, because he was. So what did he do? Verse 7. He made himself of no reputation. Now that's a hard to grasp in the English. Because that kind of sounds like, well, he didn't really care what people thought of him. No, the word actually in Greek means he emptied himself out. He emptied himself out. Last night we began to put up some of our Christmas decorations and our, my grandson was with me most of the day trying to find some of it. And uh, we took a box and I was trying to find out what's in it. So I just turned it up and em- emptied it out. Whatever was in there came out. When it was out, when it was done, I still had the box, but it was now empty. He emptied himself. He made himself of no reputation. What this is saying is he took all of his attributes, his power, his glory, his majesty, his wisdom, all of the things about the Word, all of the things about the second person of the Godhead that made him God, he emptied them out taking the form of a bondservant. He came to this earth taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, taking on flesh. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We're talking about God so loved the world that He gave. But He didn't just give by saying, Son, why don't you get down there for a while? This is what He was willing to do He's willing to lay aside His glory. Just read Revelation chapter 1 and 2 and you'll get some glimpse of what He looks like now. He laid that all aside. Now there, there's, an in, there's several incidences in, in, in the Gospels where we get little insights into this. One is there's a point where Jesus takes James, uh, Peter, John, James and John and takes them up on a up on the um, up on the mountain with him, and says, "You guys wait here and, and pray for a while." And he goes over and he starts praying, and all of a sudden his clothes began to glisten and to glow, and there was a glow coming from him. And these other two individuals, glowing, began to appear to him, and they were Elijah and they were Moses. And he's talking with them. And that term is called the transfiguration. That's a long word, basically meaning changing your form. And what it was, was for a few moments there, he, his glory came back and shone out of him. And these three disciples got to see it. And then they heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And then Peter wants to build the church around this experience called the Church of the Transfiguration of James, of Peter, of, anyway... And, and the moment he wants to do that, preserve the experience, it disappears. We also know this happened because in John chapter 17, when Jesus has finished his work with his disciples, and he's preparing to go to the cross, and he's praying to his Father, we get an insight. This is really the Lord's Prayer. Because the one back in Matthew is the prayer teaching us how to pray. This is listening in to Jesus talking to his Father. 
And he starts out by saying, I finished what you sent me here to do. Now restore to me, you can't restore something that you already still have. Restore to me the glory that I had before. So what he's saying is, I emptied myself of this glory. I emptied myself of all the attributes, all the power, all the advantages of being the second person of the Godhead. Now I'm coming back having finished what I did, you sent me to do. So restore it back to me. We're talking about how much God loves us, the world, because he was willing to set all those advantages aside. Now the first, verse 5 here started out by saying, have this same mind in us. So we get so caught up on our rights. Well, I have a right to this, and I have a right to this, and I have a right to this, and even as a Christian, I have a right to this, and I have a right to this. But Paul's saying, yeah, that's great, but have this mind in you was in Christ Jesus. He set aside his rights to serve other people. We're going to talk about that. To become a bondservant. Okay. Okay. Did I get verse 7? Yeah. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men. The enormity of what Jesus did. We don't think about this on Christmas. Yeah. We don't think about this on Christmas. We think about the manger. We think about the wise men coming. But we don't see the background of what he had to do to lay aside where he was, who he was, and come here. Think about this. Not to just come as a man and suddenly appear at 30 years of age out of the wilderness, but to be born like every other human being born, as a baby. And not to the king, not to Caesar, but to be born to a little teenage girl and her betrothed and to be born in a trough, a feeding trough. The humility to come. Love humbles itself. Love does not insist on its own rights, 1 Corinthians 13. Love does not regard itself. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. If God took into account the wrong suffered, Jesus, would have, the Word would have stayed up there and would have never come down. He came down and took on flesh because God doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. God so, God so, God so, God so loved, God so loved that He had to do something. And we're going to pick up here next time. Let's pray. Father, the words that we've heard today, the things that have come into our heart, our minds can't grasp. Our our mind cannot fathom, begin to imagine just three in one, the Trinity. It, It can't begin to imagine that, but we can believe it, Lord, in our spirits. Our spirits are touched this morning because our spirits inside of us bear witness that this is truth. And we've come because in this Christmas season, we want a deeper revelation of how much you've loved us. A deeper revelation of not just that you loved us, but what your love meant, that what you were willing to do, of how you held nothing back. And we come this season, this Christmas season, Father, as we begin it with all the distractions, all the busyness, all the pressures, may, we, may this be a season, Father, where the depth and the enormity of your love touches us at a much deeper level than it ever has before. 
And I'll end with this prayer, Father, that Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus. That you would strengthen us by your Spirit in our inner man. That Christ might dwell in our hearts, be able to live. Live through us in our hearts by faith, being rooted and grounded in love. We might come to know, together with one another in here, the breadth, the length, and the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ, that's been, the love of God that's been given to us in Christ Jesus, so that we may be filled up with all of your fullness. And our confidence is that He was able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or think, according to the power that's at work in us. <clears throat> For this we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Before we close.